All right, welcome to our podcast. Today, we are talking about the business of healthcare from a legal perspective. That's what we do. And I don't think we've had an exclusive healthcare-related topic yet. It's uh, it's definitely taken the forefront in uh, pop culture and what people have been talking about the last year and a half. Sound Smart Business, where your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stomp, cover business in the news and add their awesome legal twist. Legally Sound Smart Business is a podcast brought to you by Pasha Law PC, a law firm representing your business in California, Illinois, New York, and Texas. Here are your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stomp. All right, welcome to our podcast. Today we are talking about the business of healthcare. From a legal perspective, that's what we do. Um, welcome, Matt. It's uh, it's been a at least a month since I've seen you in person via <laughs> video. You look yeah, good, virtually, virtually in person. If that even makes sense. Thanks. I try to. It's a better <laughs> better time than it was at this time last year. So that's true. Very true. We're still doing a virtual, even though it's 2021 and not 2020. But um. That also is a, the nature of being distant from each other as well, I suppose. So what do we got today? Well, we're doing healthcare. We are business attorneys, but we also specialize in the business of healthcare. And I don't think we've had an exclusive healthcare-related topic yet. Um, and of course, uh, uh, it's we're really deep in healthcare in, in Texas and in California. And so a lot of our topics are going to be related to that, but I'm 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 a little I'm excited for this. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's been uh, healthcare's been very prominently featured in the news the last year and a half, particularly with the what it seems to be just an ever changing uh, thing of different rules and regulations that need to be followed. And obviously, we'll, we'll talk, I don't want to get too deep into it because we're going to talk about a lot of those today. But it's uh, it's definitely taken the forefront in. Uh, pop culture and what people have been talking about the last year and a half. Yeah, if you, I think one of the biggest things that I keep hearing from both current clients and new clients is telemedicine. It seems like, I mean, that, that is like, it is, it, that is, that has been a, there's been rule changes on the, on a CMS level. So like when it comes to what you can and can't do from a telemedicine visit has completely changed since the pandemic has come. And the realities of like what people are more willing to do now, instead of doing a office visit, doing a virtual visit, I think the consumers have had a, a paradigm shift in that regard as well. Well, it touches on what you said at the beginning of this episode was you know seeing us virtually, seeing each other virtually, and that's it was just a necessity on what some physicians had to do. I mean, it was just a matter of survival, and obviously there was in-person uh, visits for when it needs to be, but a lot of physicians and other part of healthcare shifted to kind of that virtual setup um, just out of, just they had to do it. Right. I mean, I know I've had both personally and for family members, multiple virtual visits, whereas before I don't even think uh, I had one. Well, let's talk about it. It's actually pretty interesting because the Teladoc model, which you can call it the Teladoc model, it's not a unique model actually. It's a model that um, many physician practices use in states where they have what's called the prohibition of the corporate practice of medicine. And, uh, and that concept exists in, in most states of the country, not all, where they want to prevent for-profit businesses that are non-professionals, non-doctors or non-licensed healthcare providers having a ownership over a medical practice. And so Teladoc, what do they do? They provide medical services through a technology platform to its patients. So how do they make money? And they use something called a MSO model, Management Services Organization. And I know, Matt, you've, you've, you've worked with MSOs in California, right? 
Right. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't want to simplify it by giving a couple sentences, but like you said, uh, you set up a separate management services company and it can provide a variation of, of services then to the, uh, the healthcare company at that point. And that's how right. you kind of, that's how you can avoid that corporate, corporate practice of medicine. I, I know California is pretty big on, uh, emphasizing that the, the corporate practice of medicine part, um, and some kind of stricter enforcement than maybe in other States. But I mean, that's, that's really, I don't want to say a workaround because they probably wouldn't like that language either, but that's kind of what right. it is at the end of the day. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is like, that is the, Matt described what the essence of the MSO model is. But the problem is, is that because it, it gets a little deep in the nuances uh, and it's easy to lose it, you know, people tend to think that it's actually a very simple setup. You know, hey, you have another entity that provides management services, professional entity pays, but it's a lot more complicated than that. And the reasoning is, is because there's a lot of different uh, regulations that apply to anytime you're sharing fees, not sharing fees is probably not the right word, paying money to a, another company that is sourced from these professional fees. So you have to concern yourself, is, are, you, are you violating certain uh, regulations that prohibit sharing of fees of professional fees, of, of healthcare-related fees? Is the amount that you're paying to this management service organization, is it uh, commercially reasonable? Is it, it, is it being paid for the inducement of referrals? These are all things that, um, from a compliance perspective, you need to consider. And every state is different. You'll have some states, for example, where you, in, in Texas, it's okay to uh, have the professional entity employ all the professionals, you know, the doctors, the nurses, et cetera, but then have the MSO employ the non-healthcare uh, workers, such as the administrators, the billers, and things like that. Whereas in other states, that model may not be appropriate. And how much is being paid, whether it's a percentage of gross or a percentage of net or a flat fee, all these things kind of matter. And then on top of that, whether or not the provider is accepting insurance, are they doing uh, participating in federal programs? And it's like, okay, all of a sudden, a very simple model that Teladoc does on a national level becomes very complicated. And by the way, the reason we know what Teladoc's model is is because they disclose this all publicly. And so to a certain extent, obviously, when they did their IPO. And so we can get an idea, okay, it is possible to do this in every state um, because otherwise, how else would they make money? But I bet you even Teladoc has, um, has challenges in making sure that they're completely compliant in each, every, each and every state. Yeah, of course you have to. I mean, it's uh, like you said, the, the rules are going to vary depending on the state. And if you're going to operate in all 50 states, obviously you need to follow the, the guidelines for, for each, each and every state. Now, we say that and it's, it doesn't sound necessarily as difficult as you would think. There's, I'm sure there's states that are modeling what their guidelines and rules are after other states. And there's all, for any time you have to look at this, the laws for our, all 50 states, a lot, oftentimes you can group states together and it's going to be the same or very similar laws, but I'm, I'm sure they vetted this. I'm sure they, they still probably vetted this pretty extensively just because you have to, there's might be nuances, nuances and just, you know, little tiny things you need to know. So I think you're right. And I'm sure that. they continue to do so, uh, right. continue to monitor because the law in this area, even the last, especially in the last a year or two has changed quite a bit. Um, and speaking of like kind of doing this diligence, I, you know, uh, I know we've done 50 state surveys um, in healthcare and for different reasons. So like we've done 50 state surveys to figure out or practice medicine rules or telemedicine rules or uh, different, you know, when it comes to um, uh, the patient solicitation and these kinds of things, because when you have a client that wants to, has a certain business model in one state, but wants to scale, uh, one of the first questions is like, okay, I want to figure out which states can I go into and start um, expanding. And one, one of the things that we do is we, we assign it based upon red light, green light, yellow light. Whereas, okay, you can take this model, it's green light, you can copy and paste, do the exact same thing pretty much with maybe some differences, but 
it's a full go. And of course, the opposite, it's like, this model is not going to work, right? This model is not, you, you may not even be able to do business there in the way that you want to. And there's, because of the difference of state regulation, there's concepts like this. And then of course, yellow is in between where you may have to adjust the model, you may have to do this or that. Um, and, uh, and that's something typical in healthcare uh, that, that you do because it's unlike other types of um, regulated industries, healthcare is one of those where it's so state specific. Exactly, and I can't hear I can't hear the uh, street light analogy, the red light, green light, without thinking of the game. If you watch Squid Game, <laughs> the first game they play, oh. you, you watched or no? I can't remember. I know the I kids I game. To... I know I haven't seen it. Oh, okay, but oh. I feel like we have to talk about Squid Game at least in tangentially because it seems like everyone's talking. Yeah, I feel like it's already passed, but it had its okay. Well, had its window open. Uh, or the, I'm glad the we're not. I, I wouldn't have any ideas. It's not really probably appropriate uh, for for purposes <laughs> of this, but is it really that bad? Okay, not bad, but just not applicable. Oh, not applicable. Yeah, I was thinking. Well, I I heard it's pretty violent. Oh, well, I mean that too. But now we're getting out. Well, so topic. speaking. <laughs> well, speaking of violence, um, let me see. We can talk a lot about violence. I mean, we can talk about Doctor Death. We can talk about. I'm just looking at my notes here, but let's let's talk about. Employment law, staffing. Um, even though healthcare, when we talk about the business of healthcare, uh, and by the way, the reason we say business of healthcare versus healthcare law is, I think it's a much different thing. And that's, and then this may be kind of in this, like in the weeds a little bit with um, kind of law uh, practicing law, but oftentimes when someone tells me they're a healthcare attorney, to me, like just based upon my experience, it's like they they are. Uh, they are heavy on compliance. Like if you have a regulatory question related to healthcare and how to do this or that, they're the person to talk to. The business of healthcare is a little bit different. And that's why I like to say, you know, we're business corporate attorneys with an emphasis in the healthcare industry because um, that's a very kind of different approach. And when it comes to employment law, so we're talking about employment issues um, or staffing issues that come up in healthcare, kind of unique to that industry. I, I think that's an important distinction because you're, you know, you're exactly right. It's there's a lot of compliance issues that uh, these attorneys will n need to know, and what we're going to get into some of those those later. But there's the other issues that are still legal that you need to know as well. And like so, the first one is going to be um, employment law related. And what's what's been in the news recently? Uh, let me step back a second. Obviously, there's little nuances for uh, hiring physicians and nurses and things of that nature, but I don't know if we really want to get into all those details, but the the big uh, story in the news in terms of employment law in the healthcare industry has been just the ability to have people to work, particularly uh, yeah. with the with the vaccine mandates. Um, you know, there's been, I know I saw, I think, a story in... Um, in Houston, there was a facility with, I think, uh, like around 26,000 employees, and they've lost, well, I think, like close to 1,500 of them because they refused to get the the vaccine. And that's not, and it's not just a problem in healthcare necessarily, but it's it's been a it's it's been a major one across the country, um, particularly with hospitals and just being able to have. Obviously, you need to have people to actually provide the services. And if you're understaffed in a, when there's already a high demand to begin with, it becomes a huge economics issue. Yeah, staff, as we know, when it comes to recruiting staff in general, outside of healthcare even, it's kind of a strange time or unusual based upon what's happened in the last few decades here in this country. But when it comes to recruiting nurses, I mean, gosh, I, mean, I remember it, the, the encouragement of getting people to get their nursing degrees. Like when I was in college was really high at that time. Like there was a nurse shortage in California and I think there still is uh, and across the country. And add on top of that, that nurses don't want to work certain jobs, right? They don't want to work in COVID units. Some, like Matt said, they don't want to get the vaccine and, um, and so that has become a, a pretty big challenge. And we've seen it firsthand with our, our clients for sure, um, to the extent that we, we've seen, and um, not with our clients necessarily, but 
we've seen uh, facilities. I saw one in in Central Texas where they were advertising that they're not requiring vaccines for their staff in order to recruit, right? Um, and even the administrator was saying, like, look, you know, I think everyone should get vaccines. I mean, this is um, from a healthcare perspective. I don't understand the concept of why, but look, we need. We also need staffing. And so if by not requiring it, we're able to um, uh, recruit a staff, that's that's more valuable to our patients than it is to have no um, support at all, which, was, which seems understandable. I do need to correct that. I, I said 1,500 out of 26,000. It seemed high when I said it was, I added an extra zero <laughs> on there. So 150 out of 26,000, which I think is more in line with the general uh, population. Um, yeah, but yeah, so, yeah, that makes sense. So, so that's from the employment perspective. That's obviously been the the more topical issue the last couple of years. Um, other things that come into play, you know, from all the the employees that are working these hospitals and different healthcare facilities. There's also a, obviously, if you didn't know, there's also a very strong uh, confidentiality perspective that needs to be looked at. And I don't know if you saw the story. Or was it um, a Texas? There was a nurse that worked for Texas Children's Hospital that uh, posted something about uh, a boy that got measles in on a Facebook group for anti-vaxxers. Which right. I mean, that's a, a textbook uh, <laughs> definition of unauthorized disclosure of PHI. Um, and I'm sure you, as you can guess, she ultimately patient health information. Oh, sorry, patient health information. Should have specified. Um, as I'm sure you can guess she ultimately got terminated for for posting that. That's a big no-no, <laughs> right? I I feel like our I I know I know I came across it. I feel like maybe our team kind of talked about it because it seems so ridiculous um, that would happen. But uh, but you know these kinds of these kinds of HIPAA breaches um, really they happen quite often, and it's interesting because. Um, from a legal perspective, it it happens so often. You get kind of um, what's the word? It's almost like a it's almost like the same data breaches. You, you you get immune to every time it happens. And the OIG um, on a federal level, um, and also frankly, uh, the there's, there's state uh, agencies as well. You know they they're the ones that end up you have to report to in order to um, if you have significant breaches. They get ton every year, and depending upon how bad of a breach it is, you may have you may be required to disclose it. Depending upon how bad a breach there is, you may have to disclose it to the patient. You may, and then oftentimes, if it's a bad breach, and depending upon different factors, including the size of your facility, that what what you've done to what was what was the cause of the breach, these kinds of things. You may have all the. You may have fines. You may have uh, certain. Uh, uh, Call it a corrective action plans that you have to agree to, and these can be really significant. But at the same time, like it's just crazy how how often this happens. And you'll see like when people that are in healthcare, as they should be, be very paranoid about any kind of breach. Yet it happens all the time, and anything from a laptop being stolen can be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of records, now all of a sudden in someone else's hands that now in one incident became a very costly nightmare. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think the example I gave is not the common scenario of people, of an employee just posting. Uh, yeah, usually it's on accident. Yeah, yeah, usually some sort of security breach or you know, something, like you said, right. have a laptop taken or... Um, Okay, so we dealt security with security breaches are the are the big things. I think um, yeah. you know if we can just talk about kind of very simple ways to protect yourself when it comes to HIPAA uh, breaches. It's first you have to have a written policy. You have to have adequate training. These are some of the basics. But from a a company perspective, look at to the more common scenarios as to how these things occur. And one of the common ways is again if your staff has electronic data and portable devices, whether that's a laptop or so forth. It's very simple and easy to get the data encrypted. So that's something that you have to do. So if someone finds a laptop, they shouldn't be able to access all that data, number one. 
Number two is I think the most common um, HIPAA breaches to date now is related to some company or some hacker gets in your system and then either extorts you and or has access to that data or what have you. And that's the means that all of a sudden you have a HIPAA breach. It doesn't have to be posted publicly in order for it to be HIPAA breach, obviously. And so how does that usually happen? You're talking about phishing emails and you know, brute force and passwords and things like that. These are things that technologically, even though healthcare tech is kind of expensive and hard uh, to do because there's so many different components going on, there's a lot of gaps. These are some basic things that you need to have, whether it's two-factor authentication and training again to make sure that you're, you don't, you don't, your staff doesn't uh, suffer from email phishing and things like that. And if you're able to address those things, that's probably 90% of the most common breaches. I don't have the stats in front of me, but that's if you look at you look at all the breaches that get reported, it's usually that's the cost. It's not because of someone, some nurse posting on Facebook. That, yeah, that's the other ten percent or Facebook post. Um, <laughs> Facebook post. Well, uh, in that, that in that Facebook group, the anti-vax group. That reminds me of um, something locally here in UC San Diego Health. Um, you mentioned the phishing attack there, so that hat that occurred at UC SD Health, and you know that's a problem in and of itself. Maybe could have been avoided. Who knows? But the the issue here is they didn't report it. So I know we were talking about the right. actual employees themselves, but this was a huge ordeal because, like you 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 mentioned this earlier, depending on the details of the breach, you have to the facility has to report that. I think they just thought they could kind of sweep this under the rug. I don't think it was. Let's see, yeah, I think it was what, half a million patients, if I remember correctly. It was it was quite a few. Um, so it's well well over what the threshold is. I don't know how they thought they'd be able to get away with it, but. <laughs> yeah, I th and I think the the threshold is small. It's like 500 patients or so, um, and and as far as reporting goes, and the the it's in, it's interesting because I I we've been in those conversations. You know, we, we we have a client that comes to us to tell us we've had a HIPAA breach, right? And we've done the investigation. This is the cause. This is the number. Now, no harm, no foul, because I mean. Maybe they were in the system, but we can't. It's like, what do you do if, um, if really you have no reason to believe that this breach will be made public, right? Only a few people know. And of course, the problem is, is if you get caught. And of course, our advice is always, look, you know, you need to self-disclose. Um, you're required to self-disclose in certain situations. And by not doing so, then now all of a sudden you're you're opening the doors of huge liability, which is what happened here, right? I mean, they uh, what was this UC San Diego? You said, yeah, well, San Diego Health, yeah. I mean, it it seems um, if 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 they did so without informing and chose not to do that, or maybe you know they didn't comply uh, to the law. Because also the thing is too, there might be some more here. What ends up happening too is that if someone has access to your system. Depending upon how good your technological logs are, you may or may not be able to prove one way or another what they had access to, right? And there's actually different standards as to what is considered a breach um, and how many records and these kinds of things. And of course, if that happens, you know you need to get legal counsel right away. Um, some people advise, look, you need to have a as soon as a data breach occurs, you need to have a crisis management plan into effect specifically as it relates to data data breaches because again you don't you only have a certain number of days in order to to report to do the investigation internally and then follow up with other training yeah and then I, I like to draw a line compare these you know on the healthcare side to a data breach on you know whatever regular company like who I mean I was gonna yeah. say what I was. What's the name of one of the company? I guess a lot of them have had data breach. Like Home Depot was one, I think, right? And Home Depot have a yeah. big data breach. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to name any big box company that hasn't had a data breach. Yeah, sure. So if you if Home Depot has a data breach and they you know they need to notify, or they're contemplating whether yeah. they should or not, even though they're required to, okay, it's 
pot. I mean, it's probably like you'll, you'll lose some customers because of that, because they can go to Lowe's or what have you. With the health, with a hospital, to me, it's completely different because it's so difficult to find a good physician that you like. I don't think you're necessarily going to lose many patients because you disclosed, you know, the, the the data breach. And this is again, this is of course you have to do it. But if you're weighing the you know, weighing the the pros and cons and doing, it, I don't think you're going to lose too many patients as opposed to, you know, some other big box store. That's that's a completely different analysis, in my opinion. I think that's mostly true, but if you're if you're in a small community, a healthcare community, then that might be an issue. Um, and but but I think that's generally correct. I mean, people people have again. Like even we, we become immune to HIPAA breaches. Same, similarly, people have become immune to getting that email that your your personal information may have been stolen or accessed, and our commitment to security and all that jab. So, um, yeah, pretty common. I I feel like not to disagree with you, even though we don't disagree often, but I feel like smaller community, it's even less likely they would leave their current facility because there's less options. That's true. Well. See, it depends. It depends on like so. This is this is so like if you have so I know certain communities where you you have a couple options, right? You know, they go to A or B, and if and and like for example, uh, if you find out a physician one place messed up professionally, that can have detrimental effects to that facility and in that community. Similarly, if like if you feel like this this company is not professional. They're not even handling their PHI or whatever. They, it, it could have a negative. It does. It's very fact specific. Yeah, I don't know. I don't necessarily disagree with that because the physician and that brings us into uh, our next uh, story we want to talk about too was uh, Doctor Death. So I think in well, Doctor Death. This is it's not as applicable because this part of the issue was this guy was bouncing around for a different facilities, but. So if you haven't heard about, and what's his name, Christopher Dunch? I, I didn't even know he had a real name. I thought his name was Doctor Death. <laughs> well, I think it started as he went by Doctor D, and then after uh, we'll get into uh, the story. But I think some media outlet picked it up and started calling him Doctor Death. So, so this guy, and I believe, based out of Dallas, is that right? Somewhere in Texas, right? Um, all, all the healthcare uh, news is from Texas. <laughs> So he, long story short, he basically was performing surgeries and just screwing up time after time. And like I said before, he's going to different facilities and eventually it kind of, there, you know, w- once there was a couple miscues, and we're talking about serious miscues too, um, his facilities started catching on and finding out. The problem here is these, once these facilities started finding out about it, they you know, some of them just didn't didn't do anything about it or didn't report him. Um, I think there was two in particular that didn't report him to. Um, you have to report to the Department of Health and Human Services, um, who kind of clears everything for the practitioners. You know, the idea behind it, of course, is this guy is not supposed to, is not fit to be a physician. He's it's malpractice, and patients need to be aware of this because I think part of the problem with this guy too was um, he had a bunch of positive. Reviews and obviously those were, I'm assuming, were fabricated because, like I said, his track record was really bad. Yeah, you know, every time I hear this story, um, in some ways I get how it happened. On the other ways, like how how could it have gone for so long? Mm-hmm. And uh, in healthcare, and especially in the in the hospital surgery context. There's always a credentialing process and there's always peer reviews. Right? This is part of any kind of compliance program, any kind of accreditation and so forth. And as a patient, you know, these are some things to look at as to if you're going to a facility, what their accreditation is, what are their standards, what's their reputation and so forth. These are some things that you can look into because um, they do a pretty decent job in making sure these facilities are following these, uh, these processes. But to kind of bring it home to business of healthcare, uh, there on what to do, like in other words, like Matt and I can talk about what to do very easily, like enumerate down there, but it's, it's, it's not helpful 
because that's because that's easy to obtain. The hard part is actually doing it. There's, in other words, the map of how to run a great healthcare safe um, client facility. That map's been been drawn many years ago. The hard part is actually implementing and taking credentialing, for example, seriously and going above and beyond the minimum. So, for example, like um, when it, when you do credentialing for healthcare facilities, um, or sorry, uh, for any kind of providers, you often hire some third-party credentialer. That 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 position, it's you have to also understand their process and making sure that they are doing what they're supposed to do, be doing well. Uh, I've seen issues where we've had. Uh, healthcare professionals that were hired that weren't licensed because the credentialer company was not matching up um, the they were just looking up the the license under the the name of the of the provider not matching it with date of birth or social security number and doing some kind of other check because obviously if someone if someone has the same name as another licensed professional they can easily just say that they're licensed and literally that kind of thing happened. And it's things that are very easily preventable if you are kind of you know, really uh, earnestly taking it seriously. Same with the peer, peer review process. If you know, physicians are well aware, if you have any kind of um, incident or deviation of what the expected outcome is, there's usually some sort of peer review. And that process becomes highly important in making sure that physicians better themselves, but also if there's something serious going on, that it's found out very early and prevented from going going further. And the credentialing process is supposed to weed these, you know, in theory, if this doctor had a pattern of this, it should have been weeded out a long time ago. And there was some failures, um, and you can look up the story, there were some, definitely some failures in uh, different aspects of the processes of what, of what policies were appropriately implemented. Yeah, I think that was the big thing, other than the non-reporting. This the fact that he was able to go on for so long and not <laughs> not end up uh, being caught, I guess. So, but he eventually was. So, I think it all all worked out for everyone except some of the patients. All right, so I think we hit on some of the the bigger employment related topics uh, in the healthcare industry. So. Let's talk about some of the more, the regulatory items, and we're not going to bore you with the non-fun stuff. We'll talk. We're going to talk about fraud and abuse, things like that. So, the one story, <laughs> the one story that's uh, been in the news uh, somewhat recently. I think it was. I think it broke maybe about a month ago, month or two ago. I guess whenever this yeah, comes out was. It was recent with the um, with the NBA players. I think there were a little under twenty in particular. Um, but basically, they had this ring. Did you, did you know any of them? Were any of them famous? Or uh, there were. I, mean, I I knew, I'd heard I'd heard of all of them. I don't think there there was no one that was a like an all star, but there was definitely there was definitely a handful of guys that were prominently known and played in the league for a while. Um, okay. So, uh, including the, the guy who was kind of the ringleader. So basically, um, what they were doing was they had this whole plan set up to defraud the NBA's health and welfare benefit plan, essentially by creating, well, the, the main individual, Terrence Williams, make sure I got his name right. I believe it's Terrence Williams. Yeah, Terrence Williams would essentially recruit other players, and these are all retired players, and would produce uh, fake invoices they would submit it to the the league's uh, health health and welfare benefit plan, and then they would get some sort of reimbursement back, you know, whatever whatever that amount was. So essentially, just and I guess I should specify too, the, these NBA players, these former NBA players, weren't actually getting the treatments. Um, they were just submitting invoices. Oh, yeah. they, they were. <laughs> I, I I should specify that part. Yeah. Um, so they're just claiming that they got these different procedures. Um, and then would submit it, get, get a reimbursement reimbursement portion back, and just pocket the money. And I think this it was set up too, where the where the main the ringleader was supposed to get a kickback on top of that too. I don't think all the players comply complied with that. That's a double kickback, yeah. Right. So it's a kickback on the reimbursement that you weren't in, that for service that was never performed, 
and he got a kickback on that kickback. Yeah, so I think I wanted to find the exact number. I think it was around four million dollars in total treatment or, or alleged, not even Simon, alleged uh, fraudulent <laughs> fraudulent treatment and services. Um, so uh, I, the one that was I wanted to point out one in particular because I thought it was pretty funny. There was one player who claimed who claimed he got. Uh, $48,000 in dental work in Beverly Hills, California. But he was at the time of the procedure, he was actually playing in a league in Taiwan. So I feel like that's probably very easy to prove that one was fraudulent. Some of the other ones, maybe not so much. But this shows you an example of what exactly these guys were trying to pull off. I mean, eventually, someone's going to catch wind of this. Authorities start looking into it, and then it really opens up from there. So it's, this is, I mean, this is an incredible story um, because of who's involved on one hand, but not an incredible story when you talk about the actual act because the rampant fraud and abuse in healthcare, I think many would be very surprised of how, how much is going on. It is a crime of um, significant proportion um, and and, but that's also why there's stiff penalties. However, um, it, it's because of the nature of healthcare. There is some ease of committing this crime compared to others. And that's because in order to get money, you have to submit paperwork and in return you get a check. I mean, obviously there's much more to that. There's a lot of checks and balances, but it's not like walking into a bank with a gun. And it's, I mean, it's unlike any other crime that I can think of. It's not even like taking money out of a cash register, right? Um, and, and you'll see schemes like this from unsophisticated and sophisticated uh, uh, people. And usually there's more than one person involved. It's, it's atypical that... Um, of any kind of sizable abuse that one person did everything because like, for example, in this case, like they had to submit a claim by using some kind of provider and the money is going to go to that provider. Assuming none of the MBAs are healthcare providers themselves. I don't know if that's the case or not, but the money didn't go to them directly. Right. And, uh, and if they, they pocketed, they use their name, they, you know, they, they arrange these things and, and you know, when it comes to the NBA health benefit plan, they probably it's probably a rich plan. I mean, I don't know. I, I have assumptions that the what the plan that plan is willing to pay out is probably a little bit better than what most self-funded plans are in, in the country. But uh, but it, that so that's what that's what's unusual is the people involved here. But uh, unfortunately, when you talk about healthcare fraud and abuse and the law in this area, it's it's. It's pretty significant, and often when you talk about compliance, you're talking about okay, how to. There, there are ways, by the way, that one can inadvertently uh, commit fraud, because uh, unlike unlike the common definition of fraud, where it requires this intent, um, healthcare fraud in the context of Stark Law, in the context of anti-kickback rules, um, you don't. They don't need to prove that you had the intent to defraud, et cetera. It's certain structures and transactions where, um, and going back to when we we're talking about the MSO model, where if you're if you're paying um, or splitting fees, or those fees are such that it's it's um, beyond what's commercially reasonable or beyond what's fair market value, those could be considered illegal funds and could be clawed back, and even criminal in some cases, uh, depending upon the nature of it. And I think um, even though, and this is still recent, so I don't know what the repercussions are are going to be on these NBA players, but uh, I'll tell you that if they were dealing with Medicare dollars versus dollars from their own plan, their um, their future would be much different because when you deal the the criminal punishment and so forth when you're dealing with Medicare fraud is actually pretty pretty harsh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no doubt. I, I was trying to find when. I think some of them have maybe 
some hearings coming up. They pled up. guilty or something. Uh, actually, I don't know if I, you know, I haven't stayed on top of the story too much. I don't know if any of them have, but um, you know, it's probably still too early. Well, so that was our that was our. Uh, so you you can talk about basketball. You you got it down. <laughs> that was yeah. I mean, that was this is that was basically a, this is basically a basketball episode. Yeah, sports. sports episode. Yeah, then we'll talk about our the other basketball player. I wanted to talk about was uh, Elizabeth Holmes, who I can't confirm whether she played <laughs> basketball, but she's done a lot of oh, things. Okay. She's well, if you've if you've read up on her on her upbringing and history and everything, she seemed you know she basically said she'd accomplished everything and at an age before anyone was to accomplish that and it seemed pretty seemed like it, it checked out for a while until they real until the authorities realized uh she was also defrauding people in this case it was uh well that, that's what happens in these kinds of scams and frauds is like they they lie big and uh so much so that it becomes unfathomable to question whether they're lying or not because like well why would someone lie about that <laughs> Yeah, and I would say she was defrauding not only physicians, patients, but also she had quite a bit of investor money too. I believe it all centered around, if I remember correctly, the this or big piece of it was this Edison device, um, which was right. uh, blood, blood testing or blood screening, and she she claimed all these things, um, you know, and as it's the the top equipment piece and for what it does and they can do something that none of the other products can do but I believe she was they were even using other companies created blood screening devices um, too which was one of yeah, the many problems. Yeah I mean and I think people may recognize um, they may not recognize uh, what's her name Elizabeth Holm they may recognize Th- what is it Theranos or their company um, Theranos I, don't know. I was going to ask you I think uh, it's Theranos but I'm not sure. Theranos, yeah. So yeah, I, I, I. By the way, the only reason I know this is because I had a doctor friend that was telling me about it. I thought it was interesting, but what he was telling me is what they were doing was. So by the way, so it's like the worst sourcing. It's like I didn't even look it up online. It's like oh, someone told me this. Yeah, but anyway, I'll tell it anyway, just in case. Uh, if it's not true, then just take it as an anecdote. Um, but no, he was saying that one of the ways that uh, she was kind of keeping it away from everybody was that um, she was uh, taking it to other labs to do the actual testing at first. And then she actually started, how, they, how they, she was actually caught, she was buying equipment for other, uh, from other entities to actually run these tests. And the idea is, and I think the, the, what she was selling was some kind of you know, magic device that would be able to give these results very quickly and kind of almost miraculously and she raised a bunch of money and apparently is currently on trial um still right i think is it still going on or is it finished now? i th- i believe it's still going on yeah it's in week 10 of our trials which is pretty that's probably that's pretty long and it's weird because you know people talk you know people use the word allegedly and so forth but it seems Either she committed fraud or didn't. It doesn't seem like it would be that complicated of either proving a fact or disproving it. But it's, it's it seems strange that it's taking so long. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, she I'm sure maybe she, she's not guilty. It's possible, innocent until proven guilty. But I imagine there's quite a few witnesses and a lot of and also quite a bit of uh, detailed and stakeholders. Possibly, yeah, I mean, and that yeah, there's. There's a lot of people that are going to pull into this, and I think from what I recall before, when she was trying to base, when people, when the investors started um, catching wind of this, I believe she spent an ex, you know, extensive amount of time and money through a legal through her legal team to try to essentially block any sort of uh, access to information about the company. I mean, there's a whole bunch right. of so I imagine she's retained. Uh, a lot of attorneys for this as well to, you know, I guess for this case on the criminal side, so. All right, so um, I, the, the next kind of section is uh, some topics that I, 
I really do enjoy talking about, even though I, I mean, I enjoy all of it, but in particular when it comes to healthcare, and that is contracting. Um, and so for those of you not in healthcare, um, you may know that when you are a patient, you can either go out of network or in network. And typically the patient responsibility of an out of network provider tends to be higher because of the how insurance plans work. And providers enter into these contracts because they get a pre-negotiated rate. And in theory, they should be uh, steered uh, a more a higher volume of patients because um, the payer will advertise that this provider is in our network and pre-negotiated and it's less expensive out of pocket, right? And so, um, but that's from the patient perspective, but what people may not be aware is the dropping of in and out of networks by big hospitals and other providers happens all the time. And well, maybe patients do. I mean, I'm sure patients have experience where the doctor they've been going to for years is no, you know, they're no longer in network with such and such payer. And, and people ask, you know, what are the reasons why and so forth. And um, so something in the business of healthcare that we do is besides reviewing these contracts, these in-network contracts, but also how to deal with uh, reimbursements out of network in particular. That's something of a specialty that our firm has developed over the years. And that's a whole world in itself in figuring out the legal rights of out of network providers. Yeah, like you said, it's there's bouncing in and out happens all the time. You know, unfortunately, you know, the you know, the the big victims here are the patients. You know, if they said if they're in network at a at a facility and they no longer are, you know, then it becomes a a huge burden on them both. <laughs> And it could be, you know, burdened from the cost perspective as well. Um, you know, whether they want to continue and be out of network or that whether they want to go to somebody else who is in network. So now I know there was, some, was someone recently in Georgia. There, there's tons of examples, but you know, I think there was roughly 80,000 people there um, at a facility between, it was a Wellstar, Atlanta Medical Center, and, and United Healthcare. But there, I mean, I don't know. How, there's many stories we can talk about this because, like you said, it's it's a frequent occurrence, but you know, from the from the patient perspective, there's not really anything you can do, unfortunately. Yeah, and and but it, I'll tell you, these kinds of big contracts disrupt the market. Like Memorial Memorial Hermann, for example, last week, they're a big hospital system um, here in, in Texas. In fact, they might be. Let's see. Let's see how big they are. Anyway, they're a big hospital. Memorial Hermann's a big hospital system here in Texas, particularly uh, in Houston. And they just, uh, both BCBS, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and Memorial Hermann announced that they sent termination letters to each other. And now in a few months, if they're not able to renew up or come to terms, then you know all these patients aren't going to be able to access uh, in-network benefits uh, at those facilities. And... I'll tell you, it's like, or when it comes to Memorial Hermann and Blue Cross Blue Shield, I'm not sure if we have the as much sympathy for either of them because both are one's a big healthcare system, another one's a very dominant um, healthcare payer here in in Texas, and so both have pretty incredible amount of negotiating power with each other, and so these are two very big systems that are going with each other. But you have all these; most providers aren't. Big systems, especially in Texas. You know, in California, um, it's unusual to not have huge supergroups. Whereas in Texas, um, it's not as the cultures, the healthcare culture is a little bit different, and so uh, it's it's not as easy to negotiate uh, contracts for smaller providers. It just isn't. And as healthcare changes and um, and as it develops, new laws come into effect. You know, the No Surprises Act, um, which is a new legislation that's coming out in, on January 1st, it, it deals with a lot of surprise bill issues and sets specific reimbursement requirements for providers. And how that's going to affect contracting is, is yet to be seen, but it, it most likely will. Um, so there's a lot of interesting kind of um, business aspects to, to this uh, from both from our perspective and, and providers. Yeah, and like you said, it's 
you know, why does this happen? It's it's just negotiation or bargaining power between the insurers, insurers and the providers on pricing. Um, another way to kind of look at it would be in the uh, landlord tenant uh, perspective. You know, if you if especially from a commercial real estate aspect, if you know if you have a Right now, I would imagine that there's a pretty high uh, vacancy and a lot for <laughs> a lot of buildings on, on the commercial side. And so, right now, you could say maybe the the tenants have uh, the the bargaining power. But if you know, a couple of years ago, whenever when those businesses were booming, you know, it might be the other way around. So, and it's not a perfect analogy to what's going on here. But like you said, it it depends on the the size of the. Um, the different companies here and you know that's ultimately like i said well ultimately the losers are the are the patients at the end of the day no doubt i don't know so that's a that's a flyover for the business of healthcare that's kind of the stuff that we do on a daily basis um particularly the fraud of our clients particularly the fraud uh dealing with <laughs> thank you know, again, like if you talk to healthcare attorneys, that they deal with a lot of that. Um, but not to, to to me, that's not the business of healthcare, right? Um, but we had to talk about that because that's uh, what's in you know, in the news and in, in in the industry. But yeah, luckily we don't have to deal with that too much, frankly, at all. Well, e- either way, fraud or no fraud, thank you for joining us. And uh, don't forget to be very active in our social media as we are. Comment, like, and share this post. And we're also going to be on YouTube as well. So if you're listening to the audio version of this, you can listen to and watch the video version of this. If you're watching the video version of this, you're already listening to the audio version. But if you only want audio, then you can listen to the podcast. Or you can just close your eyes. Either way. Well, you could still just, you could do only video, turn the volume off. So every option's in play. Every option. (laughs) All right. Well, I think that wraps it up. So uh, keep it sound and keep it smart. You just listened to Legally Sound Smart Business with Asar Pasha and Matt Staub. For more information about the podcast, visit LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com. This podcast is intended but not promised or guaranteed to be current, complete, or up-to-date and should in no way be taken as an indication of future results. No attorney-client relationship is created by listening to or engaging with the podcast. The podcast does not constitute legal advice but rather is produced for entertainment and educational purposes only. Do not rely on the information on this podcast without first seeking the advice of an attorney. The opinions expressed in the podcast reflect the views of those individuals and does not necessarily represent the views of any other individual or business. This podcast may contain portrayals of clients by non-clients, reenactment of scenes, and persons which are not actual or authentic, and depictions which are a dramatization.